Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. There is a place where time stands still, where nature is harsh and demanding, where only the quick and the strong and the deadly can survive. This place is no place for civilized man. I want my land. All you've got to do now is pass the Australian culture test. Three simple questions, three correct answers, and you go through that doorway to the greatest little country in the world. And good morning, it's Annie for Showreel on 3CR 855 on your AM dial. Of course, we're streaming and also we podcast. And today, on our focus in on Australian uh, film, we're going to go and talk to Liam Ward. Now, Liam Ward has been doing a doctorate. He's a uh, film uh, aficionado, but he is he tends to the left. And his uh, doctorate is finished. Maybe you'll get some, uh, you know, instructions to uh, fix up or whatever. But uh, I was lucky enough to get to talk to Liam about his wonderful project because his doctorate is in film form. And I'll leave it to him to tell you why he's such an interesting fellow and why his project is so interesting and why you as a 3CR audience would be interested. Here we go. Liam Ward. The film I made, or the, the focus of the project overall, was about uh, sort of radical histories on screen. And so I was focused on a sort of alternative history of Melbourne, you know, the history of Melbourne that doesn't often get spoken about. It's, there are some good books published, but um, it's, it's rarely represented on screen. So that was my broad sort of umbrella. And within that, I focused in narrowly on uh, the um, stories of, uh, or issues of race in Melbourne, race and class, and so I was particularly focused on uh, the experiences of Chinese furniture makers in Melbourne around the turn of the last century. And some people may be aware that uh, we had such a uh, strong uh, racist uh, uh, outlook at that time that when furniture was made by Chinese people, it had to be branded as such and was sold at a cheaper rate. Series of laws passed, and it, or the Victorian government attempted to pass a series of laws. They finally did in, I think it was 1896, and this meant that, yeah, as you say, all of the furniture that was produced in Melbourne for any kind of retail sale had to be branded with either one of one of two stamps. It either said made with European labour or made with Chinese labour, and those those laws were in place right up until the 1960s. So you can still find, you know, if you trawl through the second-hand furniture shops around Melbourne, you'll still sometimes find. Uh, pieces of furniture with those stamps on them. Tell us about what you said in your film, how you created the film. How did you go about it? Because you told me it's actually in uh, Chinese, isn't it? Subtitled with English. It's in, yeah, well, there's two Cantonese. narrations. There's two narrators. Yeah. Uh, one of them is, as you say, Cantonese. He's a fictional character. Now, the other one is 
myself, talking about my family history. So the reason for doing this, I guess, was because for me the political questions around the relationship of organised labour in Melbourne uh, to these questions of the Chinese exclusion laws and the white Australia policy uh, was something I was particularly interested in. Uh, on my father's side, there's a long history of trade union and ALP activism. And on my mum's side, as it just so happened, her grandfather uh, did an apprenticeship as a furniture maker. He didn't work as one later on. He did, did an apprenticeship. And my mum still has a couch that he made uh, in the back shed in 1916. Uh, wow. Yeah, no, it's amazing. And I've seen this couch all my life. It's kind of a rat's nest now. Uh, but somewhere on that, sh- on that couch, there will, if it's made in compliance with the law, there should be a stamp saying made with European labour. So this question of the sort of intersection, I guess, between um, you know, organised labour and racism and these discriminatory laws, uh, all of that stuff was sort of, I could see it kind of being expressed in various ways through my family history. So, so part of the film was me talking about that stuff. And the other part of the film is, is this fictionalised Chinese narrator who's talking uh, in Cantonese um, it's a bit of a first-hand account of um, the, particularly the organising and strikes that were undertaken by these, those Chinese furniture makers in Melbourne between 1880 and 1910. Oh, that's really fascinating to me because uh, I did some uh, slight research when I was down in Warrnambool, which is the town I was brought up in, and I noticed when I was doing some stuff down at the Historical Society and I noticed that uh, when uh, the Federation happened, and there was the celebrations of Federation, that about 200 Chinese nationals who lived in around Warrnambool and ran a lot of the market gardens and other things around the, in, in this town went up to celebrate even though they were excluded as citizens and were unable to vote. So they obviously were an aspirational uh, community and that's also expressed here, isn't it, in the industrial actions that they took. with other workers and to identify themselves as part of the, the organised labour movement. Um, so, for example, during the Great Strikes in the 1890s, there was a series of actions that the film touches on uh, where these Chinese furniture makers reached out to offer donations or to show solidarity with um, you know, the shearers and the maritime workers. This is where it gets interesting, though. So they, they saw themselves as, yeah, they wanted to be part of the community, especially when the workers, when the workers movement at large was moving. You know, when there were strikes happening, when they were surging forward, these Chinese workers saw themselves as part of that struggle and part of that kind of wave of, of rebellion and resistance. And um, the response they got from the sort of mainstream labour movement is revealing. You know, there was... So, for example, at one point they made a donation, they sent a, a donation to Victorian Trades Hall, which was supposed to be for the striking maritime workers. Trades Hall accepted that gratefully, but then... They returned it later on because they returned the money later on uh, because the white furniture makers union uh, complained about uh, this donation. They said we didn't, you know, we shouldn't be supporting these Chinese workers. So Th- this is really compelling, especially in the situation that workers find themselves today. Mm. Oh, definitely. In fact, the laws, is, you know, well, who knows what's coming down the line? But you've only got to look at the sort of Islamophobia, um, you know. The, various governments around the world trying to ban people on the basis of, which is basically because they're Muslim. Um, the Australian government's long-standing practice of, um, well, most obviously there's the issue of refugees and the detention centres and the torture and the ongoing cruelty there, but there's also the issues such as the 457 visa, uh, which is essentially a form of indentured labour where um, employers, if they you know, can, pay, can pay some workers 
less or treat them with less, you know, give them less rights or, or feel less pressured even to grant them rights that they should be entitled to um, on the, you know, solely on the basis of their nationality. So these questions about race and what attitude we take to you know, how we form solidarity and how we fight for it across the various borders and boundaries that our rulers put in front of us is still a pressing question, I think. Yeah, because what's really been said is that uh, by dividing, they conquer. They do. It is classic divide and rule. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's fascinating to think that uh, this story, uh, that the story of the Chinese workers has basically been excised, except, I presume, amongst their own fellows. Uh, partly, yes. I mean, some of the history in in Chinese Melbournians has been a bit hard to find. Um, there's been some great work done by a Taiwanese-based scholar called Mei-Fin Guo, who was working out here. She did a fellowship out here. I can't remember if it was La Trobe or, or Mona. She did a fellowship out here a few years ago and produced two great books about Chinese-Australian history with some great stuff about uh, Chinese people in Melbourne. So there's some very interesting stuff in there, some really good research. She had access to the Chinese language archives of the Australasian Guomindang that a lot of the English language historians uh, hadn't had access to or perhaps even hadn't thought they wanted access to. I mean, there's a whole other question there about, you know. Um, so she's produced some great work. It's still the case, though, that issues of class, you know, it's, uh, these sort of mainstream academic historians don't necessarily get class the same way that the people inside the workers' movement do. And I think the history that really needs to be told and needs to be written is not about Chinese Melburnians or Chinese Australians at large. It specifically needs to be about Chinese workers in Australia, their history, their struggles, you know, their relationship to the broader labour movement, etc. It's like t- taking the heart, th- the beating heart is taken out when they uh, d- t- decide that they're going to remove class, the issues of class, or, and uh, reduce it to uh, individuality. That's definitely true. There are some, you know, there are some sort of celebrated Chinese Melburnians who you can, you can pick up any book uh, about the Chinese in Australia and you'll find reference uh, to some of these people um, who were often, uh, you know, diplomats or business people and they're held up as these sort of shining paragons of um, everything that, that the Chinese Australian community kind of could be. You know, if only they were, if only they were a bit richer, if only they were a bit or more well behaved. You know, yeah, exactly. European. A bit wider, you know. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. that's a bit rude. Really. I don't know, but it's but it, it is. This thread runs through it all. It's you know some of these some of these. Well, to give you a bit of a flavour for it, um, the Chinese Australian merchants, uh, whose names escaping me at the moment, I'm afraid, but some of these most famous merchants in these in through the late sort of second half of the 19th century, uh, well, came out came out scathing, with scathing responses to the rebellions of Chinese diggers on the gold fields. Uh. So when the Chinese on the gold fields were fighting against the racist exclusion laws and the licensing laws back in the 1850s... Oh, and the murders. And the murders, that's right, uh, through the 50s and 60s, 1850s and 60s, um, some of the journalists in Melbourne uh, put a bit of pressure on these Chinese merchants in Melbourne to distance themselves from it all. And, of course, they did. They couldn't wait to. You know, I think, we, again, we see this same dynamic today. Whenever we have a minority group that becomes sort of targeted as the enemy, um, there's a pressure on the kind of more moderate community leaders, respectable leaders, to distance themselves from any sense of rebellion. You've only got to look at the pressure that comes on uh, Muslim leaders around Australia today to distance themselves from any hint of, of any kind of resistance or rebellion. Uh, and you get a sense for the, the continuing uh, dynamic... 
Tune in to On Screen and find out more about what's on the big and the small screen each Saturday, 11am till 12 noon on 3CR. It's a program on film, on filmmakers and on film festivals. It's called On Screen, Mm, but it's on the radio, 3CR. documentary filmmaker. I've made lots of films like Rocking the Foundations, For All the World to See, Love Marriage in Kabul, uh, and many more. Show your love. Subscribe today to 3CR. Yes, you're on 3CR with Annie on Showreel. We're focusing on Australian film. We're having a chat with Liam Ward, who is a doctorate student who's made a film about something that uh, n- normally passes by, but uh, uh, he he's really uh, investigating the ability to use film to get across political, ideological points of view to a modern audience, which is... Uh, quite a fascinating process. Uh, before we continue with our chat with Liam, I'd uh, like to uh, spruik a film that's on at the moment or starting on the 23rd of March at Nova. It's called Plastic Oceans. Uh, Plastic Ocean, it's quite extraordinary film. It's a, it's a documentary about the interface of, of uh, human uh, p- plastic use and the destruction of the environment. It's quite awful, actually, but uh, quite compelling and uh, offers solutions to uh, how the uh, human species can pull its head in uh, and uh, stop uh, disrupting the natural course of things. Worth going to see, a very interesting film and probably a must for anybody who thinks that uh, they're on the right side of history. Let's continue with uh, our chat with Liam Ward about uh, his study into film, how to make a political film palatable. The subject matter was very personal in a sense because it was about working class history uh, in relation to a racist approach to Chinese workers at, uh, in the 18th and early uh, nine, uh, tw- in the 19th and early 20th century in, in Victoria. So it must have been a fascinating exploration for you. Uh, this is an example of why we have academics, I'll have to say. Tell, tell me about the process of translating this uh, detailed uh, uh, investigation, academic investigation, into a form, a filmic form, which is basically about emotion, in, in fact. How, how did you tailor that? project. In some ways I feel like I'm not quite finished. You know, the thing's been submitted but I, I'm still not happy with it. But it's a, it's a challenge for a filmmaker because there's no uh, sort of documentary evidence. You know, there's no, there's no sort of hidden stash of archival footage of these Chinese strikers or this Chinese union. Um, there's no interviews with the participants because, as I said, the history tends to focus on the wealthier Chinese, so they've been interviewed, but it's hard to find the first-hand accounts or the thoughts and the experiences of the Chinese workers. So a complete sort of lack of evidence. What we do have is uh, a number of old uh, reports in the English-language newspapers of the time that talk about the union and talk about the strike. They're incredibly sort of racist accounts, but they give us some sort of detail. There's also been been a lot of work done by um, sort of historians from the left 
over the years. So Jeff Sparrow and Jill Sparrow's book, Radical Melbourne, has a little section on the Chinese cabinet makers. Um, there's a series of other little uh, publications that have dealt with it over the years. But again, not much that you can work into a film. So I ended up sort of stepping back and thinking, well, what is it about this film that attracts, or this story that attracts me in the first place? And it's all the stuff we've just been talking about, about race, about class, about the history of Melbourne, the struggles, you know, all this sort of stuff. So I thought, well, the film is really about that. This issue of the Chinese furniture makers is just, it's just an in to talk about what I really want to talk about, which is an alternative history of, of Melbourne and, you know, the racism and the anti-racism that is part of this city's history. Uh, so then it, it broadened out a bit. So the, the film, you know, touches on the uh, the invasion of this area, the, the you know the fraudulent treaty with the Wurundjeri people. Uh, it, it touches on um, Tanaminaway and Mabwini here, who were who were executed outside, literally outside the building that I did the bulk of the editing on for this, yeah, for this film. Right. You know, exactly. so it's just right there as a sort of ongoing legacy. Uh, so yeah, the film encompasses all that, and that gives me a way to talk about. This issue is using images, you know, because film, we need images. And so I use images that aren't always specifically related to the story of these Chinese workers. And it's more about just trying to give a flavour for the time and to draw out some of these issues about race and class in Melbourne. How long is it? Uh, the film goes for 50 minutes. Wow. Yeah, it's... it's um, Who helped you make it? Are uh, you skilled in making films? I have a background as an editor before I came back to uni. Wow, uh, yeah, so yeah. That's, that's my background. But um, and, and because this was mostly dealing with archival material, that suited me fine. I didn't have to go out and shoot anything because my photography skills are appalling. Uh, so it's mostly archival footage. The soundtrack I sort of threw together myself, it's pretty rudimentary, but it's kind of good enough. The main assistance I received actually was to do with the language issues. You know, I have half the films in Cantonese. Um, so the two most important... Uh, people who helped me there were um, there's a, the National Union of Workers has a Cantonese language a team of Cantonese speaking organisers these days because there are a lot of uh, Chinese people working in various industries that the NUW cover. Um, so Emma Karen from the NUW put me in touch with uh, a couple of those organisers, and uh, eventually um, a woman by the name of Zarita Leung actually sat down and translated the whole script for me uh, into Chinese. Wow. Which was fantastic. And then I... Um, but did you find, before you went go on there, did you find any sort of uh, cognitive difficulty in understanding of the... Because Chinese is a, a... It's a different kind of way of representing reality, isn't it? Well, that's a... That's a deep question. <laughs> yeah, it is, isn't it? Oh, sorry, I've sorry. just had conversations about no, this. It's, um, it's fascinating. I, I did start learning Mandarin a couple of years ago, and as you're right, it's it's a different sort of headspace. If you're, you know, if you're sort of brought up in the fairly racist monolingual Victorian education <laughs> of the 80s, like I was, uh, you know, we didn't really learn any kind of Asian language at all. And so, yeah, for me, recently struggling with Chinese has been an eye opener. It, it is a different headspace, a different way of thinking about. Um, communicating. Well, it seems that way to me, you know, from the outside. I think so too. That's, uh, I mean, that's the conversations I've had with people who have learnt Chinese yeah. and who... But but this is... Uh, what you've done is uh, take a key to a door that is uh, completely overlooked by the majority of people in Australia, actually, I think. I think, yeah, and I think it's an important history, you know, because part of the... Um, again, if you look through like, the history books and you hear this even from... Um, the Liberal Party, you know, like John Howard, Malcolm Turnbull, these people say these things all the time, that the white Australia policy was the fault of the Labor movement. 
and it's oh yeah you know, right. I think there yeah there are two problems with this. The first thing is that well the British Empire everywhere they went set up racist apartheid systems. Yeah, you can't, you can't blame trades hall for you know. Singapore. I mean the English the English were the ones who said that people in their own countries weren't allowed to speak their languages. Exactly. It was exactly. part of unpicking people's cultures. Exactly. Um, and so I think it's important to be able to, to challenge that because it lets the the British Empire and the Australian and British capitalist classes off the hook to sort of say, Oh yeah, it was all the labour movement. But it's also important to say, but yeah, there were there was within the labour movement, certainly there were some very racist policies and perhaps the majority of, of um, you know, the, the sort of union leadership at certain points in time has been. But there's also this amazing history of resistance to racism. There's always been a left within the union movement. There's always been these people who, you know, in various forms have tried to fight against racism because they've understood the, the basis that, you know, it's, it's in our interest to have solidarity and, and, and to fight together. Well, that was the international workers of the world, and uh, exactly. that's true. Uh, it's not just racist, it's sexist. That's true. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. They go hand in hand. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, before I let you go, I want to know more about how you, uh, you scripted it, because okay. obviously it's quite clear that the scripting and the ideas wrangling are the key to this film. Um, okay. They, so I had done, all, I'd done, as you can probably pick up this, whole area of the history of sort of Chinese radicalism in, in Australia has been an, an interest of mine over a number of years. So I started from uh, drawing on research that I had um, I put together. I wrote an article for the Marxist Left Review, which I can send you the URL if you'd like later, uh, which mm. goes through some of this history. And the stuff around the cabinet makers was just a small kind of section of that article. But I was able to draw on all that research. Really, the first version of the script almost took word for word whole chunks from that article. <laughs> you know, I just thought this is what I'm trying to say in film form uh, in a way that has, you know, sort of is engaging and has interesting visuals and, and puts an interesting slant on history and can, and can hold people, hopefully, uh, for an hour while they watch this thing. So I started with uh, using that, some of that as my sort of voiceover. I, I knew there'd be no possibility to get, um, uh, you know, participant accounts, as I said, I also didn't really want talking heads. I thought this has to be something a bit different from talking heads. I wanted to push the kind of play a bit with form. So, uh, as I said, most of what we see then comes comes up as sort of archival footage. There's some contemporary stuff that I shot around Melbourne, but not much. Um, and then at one point I just had this sort of brainwave, I thought, or two brainwaves. Hmm. <laughs> That's all I got out of this eight-year project, <laughs> two brainwaves. Uh, the first one was that... Um, this story that I was trying to tell about these cabinet makers was uh, something that had been sort of hidden around Melbourne, but it kept popping up and, and was happening on these streets that I knew. It was happening on Russell Street, on Little Burke Street, on, you know, these streets that I walk down every day. And I sort of thought it's almost like this place is haunted by the ghosts of these cabinet makers and we, we, don't, we don't see them, we don't know them, but they're sort of here, you know, and they, were, and they refuse to die. Um, so that's why I thought, well, okay, the first... The first narrator in this film becomes the ghost of one of these furniture makers. Oh, he's fantastic. a fictional character. He's, that's a he's, great idea. Uh, thank you. Um, so, yeah, that's him. And then when I was showing this around to a few other people and they kept they kept getting me to talk about, because I'd done a few scenes, you know, cut a few sequences together and sort of showing people to see what they thought. And they, the more we spoke about it, it kept coming back to basically the same discussion that we're having now and, and the stuff I said earlier about my own family history 
and their involvement in the union movement and this couch that my mum has in the shed. And um, it just became more and more obvious that I needed to include myself in this film somehow as well. So then we ended up with this sort of interweaving two-handed narration where we get a bit from the Cantonese ghost and then a bit from me about my family and they sort of weave, you know, sort of plaited together. Oh, that's fantastic. So the voice is a male voice? Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. So it, did you find a Cantonese actor to do I that? Did. I did. As I said, I had Zarita from NUW do the translation, uh, but she's a woman, uh, and I had written the character as a man, and, and that matters actually. Well, they probably were men. They were, and actually one of the things you said before about the sexism of, of, of these discriminatory... The, the sexism of these discriminatory laws were also sexist because they... Um, it's a bit like what happens with refugees now. We, they put barriers in front of people bringing their families out here. And so one of the common dynamics was you'd get, you know, men would come out to, to try to raise money or to try to be a sort of, you know... Beat oh, in the time-honoured way yeah, that things yeah, were done. That's true, that's true. Uh, so overwhelmingly, you know, I mean, the number of women um, who were... The number of women identifying as Chinese in this period in Melbourne were, you know, sort of less than 6% of the, of the total Chinese population here. Um, so a very small figure. They'd, and they also, you know, they, they were also not doing much of that sort of work. Like in the cabinet-making trade, for example, I didn't encounter any reference to any Chinese women. There are some amazing stories, though, about um, Chinese women, immigrant and second-generation fighters in Australia. Again, in, in Mei-Feng Guo's book, the, the scholar I mentioned before, yep. she's done some great work. Sorry, no, not her. It's Julia Martinez from, um, from one of the universities in Australia. Julia Martinez has done some great work uh, looking at a figure called Lena Lee, who was a Chinese-Australian who lived in Darwin, and was very active uh, in the kind of radical Chinese nationalist movement and very close to the, the Communist Party and the Wobblies up there in the 19-teens and 1920s. Oh, how fantastic. Uh, she's an amazing figure. She's an amazing figure. Uh, unfortunately, she uh, took her own life at, the, at a very young age, um, but in the short time that she was there, she did some really important uh, political activism in Darwin through the 1920s. And, um, yeah, Lena Lee. So uh, I'd recommend, if you're interested in that, to, to look up Julia Martinez's work on Lena Lee. It's fantastic stuff. I ended up getting a fantastic actor by the name of Nelson Wu, who does uh, he does a lot of Cantonese radio around town. He's worked for Cantonese SBS for a while as well. Uh, he's a fantastic uh, voice actor and stage actor as well. Um, and he did ended up doing the voiceover for me. So it's being marked and all the rest of it, because that's what happens with doctorates. But do we get to see your film? Yeah, as you say, it's off in the hands of the examiners and they're sort of casting their eye over it at the moment. They'll probably suggest some changes. I want to make a few changes myself. Um, so it's still a bit of an ongoing project. Well, you know, of course, with artists, things are never <laughs> complete. <laughs> <laughs> I'm well, I've got so many unfinished projects in my life. Uh, but this, is, this one I, I'm aiming to have done uh, and ready to go soon, but, but that's partly because I, I would like to use it to get, you know, to show it around and maybe get some funding because there are, I've used... Oh, the soundtrack consists of all these amazing Cantonese uh, hip-hop and punk acts oh, that I've fantastic. discovered. Yes, um, they are. They're a fantastic I know. Ones. It was all new to me. When I say I discovered, it's kind of like, you know... They are. They're fantastic. The way, yeah, I didn't actually do any work. They're, they're well known to millions of people, but they were new to me, so <laughs> I, I discovered them in that sense for me. Um, and yeah, and fantastic. Actually, fantastic, really exciting, uh, and, and quite political. There's yeah. some very political left-wing kind of anarchist punk bands coming out of Hong Kong through the 80s and 90s. Um, so, yeah, I, I use that sort of music on the soundtrack, but that obviously needs then to be... Asked for. You asked to, for, yeah, yeah. The copyright. There's all, this, there's all, all that of stuff. the kind of legal stuff we need to, we need to go through. 
We'll leave Liam there. Fantastic stuff. And so we will get to see his film. We're going to go out uh, with a film uh, with a song by uh, Tony Creedon tonight. We'll sing and uh, we'll leave you in the capable hands of published or not. Until next week. Suffer some some pill tonight. I will sing and drink. You've been listening to a three CR podcast. Produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.